Hey, and thanks for tuning in. At Northgate, we're passionate about helping people become who God purposed them to be. We hope that this message encourages and blesses you today. Stay tuned after for more ways to connect. Good morning. Good to see you today. Welcome to Northgate if you're new with us. Uh, my name is Steve Perkins. I am uh, one of the pastors and I am almost always outside those doors after the service. I'd love to meet you there. Today we continue our series strong. We're in the third week. We are talking about vision. We are talking about leadership and how to do it well and how to do it with strength. Our muse for this series is the Old Testament character, Joshua. And today we'll be in his namesake, the book of Joshua chapter 7. Now up until this point in the story, Joshua and the people of Israel have experienced victory. Uh, after being enslaved in Egypt for some 400 years and then wandering the desert for four decades after that, the people of Israel have now entered the promised land, or what we know today as the nation of Israel, give or take. They are in. The only problem, and it really isn't a problem for God at all, the land that they're taking is occupied, occupado. And so Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, must serve up a few eviction notices. To date, they've done just that in Jericho, but then in chapter 7, the chapter we'll look at today, things go south, way south. The Israelites don't win this battle, they lose it handedly. And my guess is, let me apply it here right away, most of us in this room have lost a battle or two in our lives. I certainly have. And if you haven't yet lost a battle, don't worry, you will. Some of you, maybe you've lost a battle in your marriage or in your parenting. Some relationships just haven't turned out the way you hoped they might. Maybe it's a, a, a battle at work that you've lost. Instead of getting a promotion that you wanted, you get a demotion. Maybe you've lost a battle with your finances. You hoped to be wealthy at this stage of the game, but now you have less than you ever have before. Others, uh, other examples, maybe you're battling addiction or depression. Whatever the battle might be, pick your poison. My first point today, right out of the chute, every leader, and again, every one of us is a leader in some way, shape, or form. We all lead something, whether it's a family, a friend, or a factory. Every leader loses some battles. We mess up. We fall short at work, at home, and it's never fun when we do, believe me. Remember a year or two ago here at the church, I made the decision to cancel our Saturday night services. It was a bad decision. I paid the price for that decision. And believe me, while it all worked out, where our attendance overall is up 10% this time over last year, it did not feel like a victory at the time. It felt like a defeat. As a parent, my two younger children are getting a much better dad than my two older children. <laughs> uh, Isaac and Emma were the guinea pigs, my older children, and I made a lot of bad decisions as a new parent, like 
every parent, nothing catastrophic, thank the Lord, but those decisions at the moment didn't feel like a victory, they felt like a defeat. Well, that's Joshua's story in chapter 7, and here's how the story goes. Well, attacking the neighboring Amorites, the city of Ai, Ai, 36 of Joshua's men get killed in battle, plant food. And it's a surprise all around because this hasn't happened to Joshua before. He's only fought two battles, but the first battle they fought, they easily won. They won it, you might say, with both hands tied behind their backs. In Joshua chapter 1, God coaches Joshua, have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. But in Joshua chapter 7, those words just don't ring true. Not for Joshua, most certainly not for God's people. Leadership strength gets traded for weakness. Courage gets exchanged for fear. And because Joshua's afraid, so are his people. I've noticed myself as a leader, if I worry about something, my team worries about it too. Whereas if I trust, my team tends to trust. A lot rides on leadership. Joshua's not being a very good leader here. He's scared. He doesn't know what to do. It's, it's easy to lead in times of victory. Any dummy can do that. It's a different thing altogether to lead through times of failure. And Joshua asks the question all of us have asked from time to time. And the question is this, God, why did I lose this battle? Well, we're going to find out in a moment, but here's a preview. The people of Israel aren't fighting the way God has taught them to fight. No, they're doing things their way. They're saying, like we do so much of the time, and sure, God, you know, thanks for the help, but if it's fine by you, I'll take it from here. My first point, every leader loses some battles. My second point, every leader gets off course. I've done it. My guess is you have too. For example, like I said, I sometimes get off course with my family. Does that ever happen in your family? You get selfish. You don't love, you loathe. And I know loathe is a strong word, but again, began with an L, so I kept it. You don't serve, you sulk. That's better. And, and, and if that's you, you're not alone. I do the same thing, and my family suffers as a result, just like your family suffers as a result. While I'm throwing my own little private pity party, nobody likes me, nobody appreciates me, nobody notices what I do for them, they're not getting helped, my family, they're getting hurt. Joshua chapter 7, verse 7, Joshua, fresh off the battlefield, having lost his first battle, sulks. He falls flat on his face. He, he prays the last sovereign Lord. Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? You know, why, God? Why? And then he starts to spiral down from there mentally. He says, if only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. In, in, in other words, in the boundaries of the promise, that we got a little too ambitious. We were chasing our enemies even outside of the boundaries of the promised land. We got a little carried away, God. Verse 8, pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say? 
Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, what can I say? It's a rhetorical question he's asking. Joshua doesn't, isn't looking for an answer. He's got an answer already in his mind. It's not a positive answer. It's a negative answer. What can I say? Here's what I'll say to you, God. The Canaanites, the enemy nation, and the other people of this country will hear about this, and they will surround us, and they will wipe out our name from the earth. It's all done, he says. Let's pack up. That's all she wrote. Period. End of story. Our nation is finished. Have you ever felt that way personally? I have. God, there's no fixing this problem. I've just crossed that line one too many times. I've messed up just too much. And what we do many times in that situation is we resign ourselves to failure. That's Joshua. He's discouraged. His inner Eeyore is coming out. Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. He's fighting what I've called before that inferior battle. We all fight from time to time. Some of us make an art form out of it. We are so good at feeling sorry for ourselves. Poor me, I've messed up and it's over. Everything is lost and nothing will be gained and we get stuck there. But Joshua doesn't get stuck. You know, Joshua, it seems to me, almost right away, has a moment of clarity. A moment of faith, a faith that comes in the form of a question, a very good question. He asks, what then will you do, God, for your own great name? Another way to phrase that, God, what are you going to do about it? I like that question. What are you going to do about it? I've prayed that question many days whenever I'm worried, anxious, or afraid, whenever I've failed as a leader or gone off course. And there's never a shortage of material for that. Believe me, let me tell you, I have found that is a good question to ask. God, I'm in a bind. And maybe this bind is even my own fault. What then will you do about it, God? Because I can't do anything about it. I've tried, but God, you can do something about it. And in my experience, God will do something. He will. I don't always know what he's going to do. I don't always like what he does, but he'll do something. And I found increasingly that if I just stop, okay? If I just stop and say, God, I, I'm sorry, I've messed up. I'm sorry, I, I didn't follow the plan. What then will you do, God? He'll tell me. He'll whisper to me what he's going to do. And don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that he always lays out a roadmap for me. Now, roadmaps can be dangerous. I mean, sometimes he lays out a roadmap, but sometimes when he does lay out a roadmap, I end up trusting the plan more than I end up trusting him. So in my experience, more often than not, he doesn't give me a roadmap, but he gives me a confidence, just an underlying certainty that everything's going to be okay. Whatever happens, God's got this. What then will you do, God? That's Joshua's question. Here's what's cool in the story. God answers him. He does. He doesn't answer him the way Joshua's expecting, but that's God for you. And he says to Joshua, stand up. Stand up. I think what he's really saying to Joshua is, man up. 
I got a word the other day myself from a mentor, a friend. I was upset about something that had happened to me a couple of weeks back, sort of dwelling on it, sort of stewing on it, uh, stewing about in a very unhealthy way. And this mentor who knew nothing about my situation, any of it, I hadn't even told him a thing yet, I hadn't even opened my mouth yet when this mentor says to me, God gave me a word for you, Steve, get a grip. (laughs) Get a grip and lead. And when he said it, I laughed. Pastor Jeff was with me. He laughed too, a little too much because I had just been complaining to him. Get a grip, God said to me. He says the same thing to Joshua. Stand up. Why are you down on your face? In other words, quit fighting that inferior battle. Poor me, all that. Quit your whining. That'll get you nowhere. Verse 11, you want to know why this is happening? God asks, I'll tell you what's happening and why this is happening. Israel has sinned. That's why you lost the battle. They have violated my covenant. They have violated our relationship, our, our deal which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. More about that in a second. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. God says to Joshua, you want to know why you lost that battle? I'll make it real simple for you. You are not fighting the way I taught you to fight. You're keeping the devoted things for yourself. And what are the devoted things? Well, everything, basically, everything. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that when Israel conquers a city, according to God, everything is to be destroyed. And that's not happening here. No, some of the people, one person in particular, is keeping some of the stuff, he's keeping some of the booty, some of the loot for himself, gold and silver and bronze in particular. Verse 12, God says, that's what's been happening. That's why you lost. That's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore, he warns Joshua, unless you destroy whatever belongs to you, among you, that is devoted to destruction. Now, maybe you're asking, if you're following Why is God so hard-nosed about taking a little money and storing it on the side? Well, it's simple. That money is from foreign cultures, and God doesn't want these foreign cultures and foreign religions in particular influencing the people of Israel. And as we read Israel's history going forward, we'll see this happens all the time, like all the time. Israel loves going after other gods. She loves going after inferior gods instead of the one true God. More often than not, when Israel conquers a nation, she ends up adopting the gods of her neighbor and rejecting her own God as a result. So Israel's sinned because they haven't destroyed everything. They've violated God's commands, and the commands are pretty darn clear, yet it seems not everyone got the memo. Earlier in the chapter, chapter 7, a guy named Achan keeps a little treasure on the side for himself. And why does he do that? Well, you know as well as I do, he does what we all do. He rationalizes his sin. He says what we all say. It's different for me because I've got good reasons for why I'm doing what I'm doing. And besides, how much harm 
can it really cause? So he takes the money, he hides it, and in doing so, knowingly and both uh, also unknowingly, he violates God's commands. The result, we've seen the result, God removes his hand of blessing and protection from the Israelites and they lose that battle. They run scared for their lives. Why? Because God will not honor disobedience. He just won't. And it's a shock to the system. Everything's going so well for the Israelites up until this point in time. Nothing can touch them, and it seems to me they start believing their own press. Don't know why, because they really haven't done anything all that remarkable. If if you think about it, how did they defeat Jericho? If you were here last week, you remember Pastor Dan talked about that. It's not with military strength or military might. No, they just walk around the walls of the city seven times. That's it. Then after taking a long walk, God brings down the walls of the city, not the Israelites. But they somehow think it was their doing. They've forgotten what God had done, and in their minds they have become legends. You know, as a pastor, and as a pastor here at Northgate, increasingly, don't ask me why, but a lot of church leaders I know are asking me for advice. Maybe it's because I'm getting older and getting gray hair. <laughs> but they say, what's, you know, what's going on at Northgate? I mean, how does this happen in an eight-year-old church? Because many people, many church leaders in particular, admire our church and what's happening here. And so they're asking me, really, how can our church become like yours, so to speak? And I'm always at a loss. Most days, I, I don't know what to tell them. I, I just give glory to God, which sounds like a cop-out. But most days, that's all I've got. It's how I feel. Because a lot of these people I end up counseling, I end up advising are much smarter than me. Many of them are much better preachers than me. I'm sure you can believe that. Most of them, you know, frankly are better leaders than I am. And so I, I, I don't always know the answer. My answer is just somehow, in some way, God, year after year, month after month, has put his hand on this church, and I don't take any credit for it. I'm careful not to take any credit for it, and I don't have an explanation. And I'm grateful that I don't have an explanation, because like you, I have seen a lot of leaders get cocky. A lot of leaders in our culture are very arrogant. And, and, and even in my profession, I see pastors where God's success becomes their success. As the proverb reads, pride goes before the fall. They think they're the reason an organization is succeeding. And while they may be one of the reasons an organization is succeeding, they are most certainly not the only reason an organization is succeeding. Just think about your own business. If you, wherever you work, you know, there are staff considerations. There are market conditions. There's competition, context, God's favor, what have you. But they're flying high, and that's why a lot of leaders, when they change jobs, much to their surprise, don't succeed like they had before. They fail. They mistakenly think, because I did it here, I can do it there. Maybe not. And in a moment, things change very quickly for them, and all of a sudden, they're not the leaders, they're not the legends they thought they were. Same with Joshua, same with Israel. An attitude of overconfidence 
pride in their own accomplishments, results in the reduction of their army by 36 people. And the thinking goes like this. Since we did this at Jericho, we don't have to trust God for I. Let's not worry about keeping God's commands because this will be easy. So they stand on their own, in their own strength, without dependence on God, without prayer, and that leads to a sound defeat. They get off course. I wonder, do you ever get off course? (laughs) I do. You set out to do one thing, but then you end up doing another. I'm going to be a good boss, a good employee, but then you end up being just the opposite. I'm going to be a good spouse, a, a good parent. I'm going to watch what I eat. I'm going to change how I spend my money. And you end up doing none of it. I mean, you do it for a while, but then you don't. It's so easy to get off course. It's happened to Northgate here and there over the years. I don't think it is right now by God's grace. I mean, I, I see God leading in so many wonderful ways this season. I think in many ways he's opening up more and more floodgates. Just wait. I, I, he really is doing something. A couple of examples. I shared one with you a couple of weeks ago. I want to share it with you again. Confident Kids meets on Monday nights. We're helping kids going through difficult times alongside their parents. Kids going through what the experts now call childhood adversity. And what's that? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. One example, I grew up in the latchkey generation. I wasn't a latchkey kid myself, but many of my friends were, most of my friends were, and the thinking was, back then, your kids don't need you as much as you think they need you. Kind of the mantra was, it's quality time, not quantity of time. And so as a result, an entire generation of kids grew up largely without supervision, and the results weren't great. And that's why today my generation of parents are known as the helicopter parents. Because we're overcorrecting, the pendulum has swung the opposite way. And now, because many of my generation feel like their parents didn't do enough for them, we do everything for our kids. Another lie in my generation, very popular growing up, stayed popular. Divorce can be good for kids, not just bad. If mom and dad are happier, then kids will be happier too. Now, anyone who was divorced and experienced the pain of that will tell you that's not true. But that was common wisdom. That was the mantra in the 80s and the 90s. But now the experts are saying, guess we were wrong on that one too. And by the way, the experts are not people inside the church making these Claims. These are secular experts. I mean, I, I heard a whole hour-long presentation the other day on Minnesota Public Radio about the results of childhood adversity. But it, this kind of thinking was very popular growing up. You know, but turns out kids need their parents, both of them. And quantity of time is what matters, not quality time. And I don't know why this is a surprise, but... Kids don't give a rip about their parents' happiness. 
even when it comes to their marriage. Kids only care about their own happiness, and what do they want more than anything? Well, in most cases, they want their parents to stay together, even if it means their parents are absolutely miserable. So the culture is catching up to the church, but reality is still tough, and there are exceptions, of course, practical versus philosophical considerations. And on the ground, people are hurting. And that's why every Monday night at the church, we're helping kids and their parents overcome these types of obstacles, and many others, by the way, adoption, foster care, bullying, special needs, you name it. And kids and their parents are finding healing in Jesus' name, like real healing. Lives turned around. And that's what the church is supposed to do. That's what God is leading us to do. Another example, we, we have tried and tried and tried over the years to get people into small groups. I, I have permanent scars on my head from beating my head against the wall, trying to get people to be in community. We've had some successes over the years, but a lot of failure along the way too. And we had a new idea this year, Group Link, and we just did it the other day, 60 people joining groups who weren't a part of groups. That's God's leading. One more, I mean, this is anything that we even planned. I mean, we were open to it, of course, but diversity in youth. Our church, I love this, is becoming increasingly diverse. I mean, I would, wouldn't say we're diverse by any means, but increasingly diverse and younger at the same time. And that's exciting to me. Again, that wasn't something that we, we planned, but it feels more and more every day around here like the kingdom. So God is leading us, and we could get in the way of that. Like the Israelites got in the way of God's plan, but that's what we're trying to, we are trying not to get in the way of what God is doing. And I see more coming in the days ahead. I want to see more and more people find for themselves who God purposed them to be. More families healed, more people connected, more souls from all walks of life welcomed into this church family. I talked to a woman the other day, her husband, far from God. She remains faithful through it all. She keeps on following Jesus. She keeps inviting him to church, not in a nagging way, which is always the temptation, but in a loving way. And one day she doesn't know why. It really happens out of the blue. She asks him, do you want to come to church? And he responds, yes. And he's here on a holiday, and he gives his life to Christ. And his entire family is changed as a result. And that's what we're about here at Northgate. And like I said, I don't want to get in the way of that. I don't want to get off course. Because what we learn from this story is it only takes one person to get in the way of what God wants to do. Think about that in, in, in the room today. Even on this President's Day weekend, it would, it would only take one of us to get in the way of doing what God wants to do here. The failure of one man in Joshua leads to the implications of an entire nation and nobody sees it coming. Never is a believer, never is a church in greater of danger of getting off course than after a victory. We drop our guard. We begin to trust in ourselves instead of God. We begin to trust in our past victories rather than the Lord. And that's true, whatever we lead. Got the work thing down, we say to ourselves. Got the marriage thing down. The worst thing you can ever say, got the parenting thing down. I'm an expert. 
not so fast. This happens and then that. Every leader gets off course. That's my second point. Third point, here's the hope. While every leader fails and while every leader gets off course, every leader can turn things around with God's help. Failure doesn't have to mean defeat, not long term. I can tell you honestly, there is not a week that goes by that I don't fail miserably as a leader. At home, at church, but what do I do when I fail? Well, I'm getting pretty darn good at this, even though I fail just as much as I used to fail. I'm getting pretty smart at how I respond to failure. Most days, and it's taken me years to get here, I just admit it. Sometimes it still takes me a long time, but it doesn't take me as long as it used to take me. But when I finally figure it out, I get down on my knees and I say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I say, I'm sorry to my team or to the church or to my family. And sometimes just to God, I say, I'm sorry to Jesus, the one who paid the penalty for me, I confess my failures to him and seek his strength to go on. And my prayer becomes, God, make me strong. Just the other day, I messed up with some staff people. I didn't think some things were getting done, but things were getting done. I just didn't realize they were getting done. And instead of having the foresight to see if those things were getting done before I gave my lecture and before I told everybody what they should be doing, I forgot to ask the question, are those things getting done? I hope you followed that. And so what did I do? Dig my heels in, get prideful? No, not this time. I, I said, I'm sorry, made a couple of excuses. I'm human. But I said, I'm sorry, let's move on. And we did. Now, sin has consequences. It does if I did that too many times in the same way. At some point in time, sorry won't be enough. That's true for Achan in this story. He gets stoned to death along with his family. And that's because there are consequences to our actions. And I know that's a disturbing detail uh, that, that he gets stoned. And I don't mean to gloss over it. It's obviously a very serious development in the story that he dies for stealing from God. But keep in mind, the God who punishes Achan is the same God who sent his one and only son into the world to die for our sin. So God's not just sitting on the throne judging us. He's invested in us. He's helping us. And God doesn't like to see us fail. Naturally, he does. God doesn't like to see us get off course. And in him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Every leader can turn things around. Been a lousy spouse, been a lousy parent, in Jesus' name, you can turn your family around. Been a crummy friend, in Jesus' name, you can turn that friendship around. Been a terrible boss, if your employees at work found out that you go to church, they die of shock because nothing you do at work smells at all like Christ. In Jesus' name, you can turn that work situation around. You can be a better boss. You can be a better leader. Back to the story in the next chapter. God says to Joshua, again, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack I. And he goes and he does just that. And the Israelites are victorious once again. Every leader can turn things around with God's help. And remember, you are a leader. No, I'm not. You say, yes, you are. You, are, you lead 
something. Maybe you lead it well, maybe you lead it poorly. And if you're not leading it well, you can turn it around. I think the same is true with giving, by the way. One of the threads through this entire story has to do with money, and we talked about that two weeks ago. Sometimes we can be very poor leaders when it comes to our money, like Achan or Acorn or whatever his name. We keep from God what is rightfully his. And we all know the standard if we've been around. Education isn't the answer. More money isn't the answer. Trusting God is the answer. Doing things God's way, not ours. God says 10% of what you make is mine, 90% is yours. And we have the nerve to complain about that and say only 90%, God, come on. That doesn't seem fair. I won it all, but it's more than fair. God, for example, gives you 10 coconuts. I'm trying to think tropical these days. Warm weather, right? You, you get to eat nine coconuts. God only takes one. Maybe you don't like coconut. I don't know what's the matter with you if you don't, but we'll, 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 another, steaks then. God gives you 10 steaks. You get to eat nine steaks. You don't need that 10th steak. You'll get bloated and full and you'll get gout. <laughs> but what about this, God, and what about that? As Achan said, when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them, and I took them. And that's our story too much of the time. We take what's God's, and we hide it from him. We, we give it to someone else. But as I said two weeks ago, when you give that to the mortgage company, keep in mind the mortgage company doesn't have the power to bless you. When you give what belongs to God to the car company, the car company doesn't have the power to bless you. Only God can bless you. Only God can prosper you. So why give to the car company and the mortgage company what you owe to God? It's just crazy, bad leadership. We sat down this week with two Northgaters, Tim and Linda. They're here today. Tim's on our board of directors, and we asked them to share a little bit with you about their story and their journey with giving. I think you'll be encouraged. Take a look at the screens. Giving to me has always been one of those challenging concepts. Um, uh, I think in the beginning, I, I had a personal obsession, maybe that's too strong a word, about finances. I wanted to take the hill. I wanted to be, I wanted to make sure we had plenty for the future. I wanted to make sure we had plenty today. I wanted to make sure we live in the best houses, the best of this, the best of everything. And, you know, really driven to the point of, of trying to secure this big pot of gold at the end of the day. He did struggle. The money was very, success was very important to him in To be successful, he had to have the money. God taught me personally, I had a lot of learning to do, about um, finances, quite frankly, that it isn't mine, it's it's God's. But I have to say that it, it was really challenging to try and get my head around the fact that making the big money is not what life should be about, and that's what I thought that's what I thought it was about. And I think it was the hardship of, of that journey, traveling towards trying to make that buck, 
God slowed this down, put a pause on it, and uh, pushed us down to a point of being humble again and recognizing that uh, we need to change our lives, and we did. Uh, we accepted Christ again, but a true personal relationship with Christ this time. And uh, then that changed the way in which we thought about giving. I think at the end of the day, uh, from that came the notion that we need to be conscious about how we give and what we give. And uh, that's when we decided we're gonna start tithing. And I thought, well, this is a point in time where we probably can't afford to tithe, and we just don't have it. Um, because I'd already spent everything in my own mind, my own mind, not God's mind, and uh, uh, had to tighten the belt in certain areas, stop wasteful spending, curb everything back, bring it back, and then started walking down a path that I, I believe uh, was pleasing to God. And I know it's pleasing to God now because I can see now after that how all the blessings transpired, just one after another, after another, after another, after another, and the list just goes on and on. A lot of good things were happening to, in our life. Tim got a new job, he got a raise, and then he got a bonus, and things just started falling in place, and we were able to manage our life a lot better. And it, it got to the point where tithing was something we had to do because we knew God was going to bless us. We knew God was going to provide for us. And we had some ups and downs, and, and mostly ups, but we were provided for. Uh, you become joy-filled uh, when you give, and, and I think that's something that both Linda and I have experienced uh, over the years, is that uh, you just can't outgive God. I think for someone who's giving for the first time or considering giving, um, I remember how I felt when we first started to give. I thought, boy, is this something that the church is just looking for money? You know, we, we, get, we get to support the church. We get to support the programs that we offer our kids, our youth our adult programs. Uh, we get to support all the different ministries that, that we provide. We get to support uh, some of the other churches that we sponsor outside through our benevolence programs. Um, all that money has to come from somewhere. And I think that if you know that you're a part of that bigger purpose, that is just absolutely something that will fill you with joy at the end. To walk down that path and understand the blessings that God gives you, if you look for them, it, it far outweighs any amount one could ever give. Really well, well said. When, when you give, God takes care of you. And uh, when you give, you support the mission of this church, and you get to be a part of changing lives. These stories I've, I've told today, those are the lives you are changing. And we can't do it without you. We won't do it without you. But when you give to Northgate, Northgate is that place where you can give to God what he has asked you to give and where lives will be changed as a result. So we went over this a couple of weeks ago. Um, <laughs> Going to go over it again for some of you who were not here. Um, three categories. If you already filled it out, don't fill it out again. But if you haven't, I'd encourage you to do it. First option, I'm getting strong. I will give more than I gave last year, and I will work toward tithing 10% of my household income to the church. In other words, I won't trust God with all of it, but I'll trust him with more than I did last year. That's honest, that's real, and it helps me know where you're at as your pastor. Second option, I'm strong. I will tithe 10% of my household income to the church this year. I will go all in. Ran some numbers the other day, and 
We estimate that probably 15 to 20% of the families in our church tithe, which doesn't sound like a lot, I know, but it beats the national average of 3% in most churches. So I'm proud of you, those of you who are doing that. And if you're going to keep tithing this year, you can just check that box. Thank you for that. Third option, I'm getting stronger. I will give more than 10% of my household income to the church this year. As I've told you before, that's where my family lives most days, and we give far above a tithe to the church, and we give to other things as well, um, above our giving to the church. So fill it out, drop it by the doors as you leave. And keep in mind, as you do, it won't go well all the time. Every leader fails. Some days you'll want dessert, and you'll end up ordering dessert, and you'll shortchange God as a result. That's okay. Start over. Every leader gets off course. It'll probably happen to you. Don't beat yourself up too much. Jesus died for you. Remember, every leader with God's help can turn things around. Let me get personal as we wrap up. I think about my own family's giving last year, 2018. Now, my giving statement reflected that I gave, my family gave quite a bit more than we did the year before, which is true. I don't know, we maybe gave 15, 16% of our income away. So we were pretty generous. Even so, now, my family, and I've been praying about this a lot, looking back as I've been preparing this series, I am quite convinced now that was not the number God wanted us to give. There was a higher number. And I knew there was that number, but, you know, I had my reasons, and... My salary got cut for a while, and but then it got restored, and so I, but I had my reasons. And again, we, we legally, we, we met our obligation, we went far beyond our legal obligation in our giving. But now, looking back, I realize, and I apologized to my wife about it the other day, we missed out on some blessing last year. My family missed out on some blessing because we didn't give what we could have given. And I, I, I tell you that to say that for me, it's not always an obvious thing to do. I mean, tithing's obvious to me. Giving more than a tithe is obvious to me, but it's not always clear what I should give. And so this year, I've committed I will turn things around. And that's not only what Northgate is in the business of doing, turning lives around. It's what Jesus is in the business of doing. So don't feel bad about what you haven't done. Move ahead. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came for you, for you. If you were the only person on earth, he would have still come for you. He died for you, an imperfect leader, a leader who fails, a leader who gets off course, a leader like me. He died knowing that we were going to get off course, and yet he still died because he died to save us. You're not leading at home. Jesus died for that. You're not leading at work. You're not leading in your finances. Jesus died for that too. He died to turn things around. And he's our hope. 
He's our answer, and he's the one, our neighbors out there, no matter what they've done, no matter who they are, no matter what they're like or not like or look like or don't look like, he is the one we need to share with them. He's strong. And as a church, with your help, with your partnership, we will be too. Together we will become the people God purposed us to be, and we will help others all the more this year become the people God purposed us to be. We will become strong. Jesus loves you. I love you. Let's pray. So Jesus, we are sorry for getting off track and failing you. We confess in this moment, so many of us, we have tried to do things our way instead of yours. Turn us around, Lord. In faith, we, we say we are turning around today. We will become the people you have purposed us to be. We will not compartmentalize the leadership in our lives. We will allow you to lead all of our lives. And we will help others to do the same. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, our prayer team will be up here. They would love to pray for you. Maybe you're off course. Maybe you're in a season when you're failing. Maybe you're in a season when you're beginning to turn things around. They would love to pray for you. And bless you. I'll be outside those doors again. Please stand for God's blessing. Thank you again for turning these in and getting these to me. You can open your hands if you'd like. That's a posture of receiving and now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Turn around, say hi to someone, make them feel welcome. See you next week. All right, thanks for watching. I want to let you know about three things that you can do. First, you can locate discussion questions for this message on our page so you can do some independent study or talk with a group to help you process. Then, follow us on Vimeo or iTunes so you don't miss a single message. Better yet, join us in person Saturdays at 5 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. Finally, if you are feeling this ministry and you want to help advance the mission of helping people become who God purposed them to be, you can click the link to give. Your generosity brings hope, healing, and radical transformation to people all over the world. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.